And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be. Around this rotating globe, spinning through space, around the sun, around the galaxy, toward the uh, Virgo cluster. And after that, it uh, gets kind of fuzzy. Good morning, everyone. And uh, we're going to have a really intriguing show this morning because we're going out of body. Uh, everyone hang on to your seatbelts or fasten them, you know, because uh, we're going to be doing something a little different this morning. And we will get to that momentarily, but I wanted to open the show with a couple of interesting news items that kind of will connect, certainly when we're joined in the third hour by uh, our resident metaphysician, Georgia Lambert. To start with, uh, for the last couple of three weeks, I've been calling your attention to some bizarreness, actually longer than that, going on with this uh, extraordinary neighbor we have, about 650 light years away, in the constellation of Orion, which is Osiris, or in the Egyptian, Saha. Um, there's something very strange going on. So I thought we would start tonight. If you go to the other side of midnight.com and you click on tonight's banner for Jim Willis, the uh, Akashic Records show, as it says, uh, uh, the Quantum Akashic Field with Jim Willis, click on that. That will take you to the guest page. Scroll down just below the banner where it says fast links to items. Click on Richard. That will take you to my radio with pictures items. Number one, this is a really interesting animation that was done. Uh, let me see if I can see here. It appeared on Twitter. It's from uh, NHK, The Cosmic Front. NHK, I think, is a Japanese television network. I think I remember that. Anyway, it's had almost 150,000 views. It's an animation of what the night sky will look like if and when Betelgeuse, the brilliant red supergiant star in the upper right shoulder, of course, that's flipped left and right when you look at the sky, so it's in the left-hand part of Orion, upper left, uh, explodes as a supernova, which an awful lot of indications are that it could happen tonight, <clears throat> It could happen tomorrow night, or it could happen in 100,000 years. In other words, they just don't know. But it's been doing, it being Betelgeuse, it's been doing really, really, really bizarre things. Like I've read to you some, uh, some, some updates that it has been over the last, well, measured from 1993 to um, about 15 years later. A, a, a Nobel laureate, Charles Towns, who invented the laser and the maser. He's no longer with us. He has passed on. But while he was in his 90s, he set up an experiment at Mount Wilson with the interferometer on top of Mount Wilson, just above Los Angeles, to measure the diameter of various stars using a technique called interferometry. And this can actually measure this little tiny, tiny, tiny disks of stars. They're not points of light, they're little tiny disks, but they're below the resolution limit of every telescope on the planet, except maybe for the Keck telescopes in Hawaii. And the Hubble, te I don't think the Hubble telescope can see Betelgeuse as a disk. It's too small. The, the mirror is too small. But an interferometer, by looking at the interplay of light waves, can mathematically deduce and actually now create images 
of stellar disks which are resolvable by these very extraordinary uh, light interfering instruments that basically are a combination of telescopes and spectroscopes and they interfere light waves in a way that allows you to reconstruct images that are below the resolution limit of 99.99% of telescopes currently on the Earth. And when they did that, back in 93, Towns found that Betelgeuse was shrinking. If you look at all three items, number one, number two, and number three, it's, it's really a compilation of the latest uh, information on Betelgeuse. Number three is pretty intriguing, given what I'm about to say. This is the actual uh, interferometer uh, image of Betelgeuse, uh, scaled to the solar system. And as you can see, um, its outer limits extend beyond, or used to, beyond the orbit of Jupiter, which is half a billion miles from the center of the solar system. That's where Jupiter orbits every almost 12 years. It takes one, one, uh, 12, 12 years to go around once, roughly. 11 point something, 8.6, I think. As you can see, Betelgeuse is a huge, that's why it's called a supergiant, because it's huge. It's over a billion miles across, and when you include all the gases it's er erupted from its surface, it's even bigger than is Im imaged in this, in this particular graphic. Well, a few nights ago, back around the 14th of January, which is, uh, what, 10 days ago, 11 days ago, the LIGO and Virgo gravitational um, wave detectors, which have been built, that's a whole different kind of telescope, which we won't go into tonight, but it measures basically gravity waves predicted by Einstein and his general theory of relativity, you know, 100 plus years ago. Well, they finally in 2015 built a technology which can record them, can detect them. And I mean, that technology is just mind boggling and borders on the miraculous, but we don't have time to go into it. Suffice to say that these detectors, of which there's more than one, why do you want more than one? Because if you detect a very faint gravitational wave, how do you know it's not a truck rumbling by on the street outside? I mean, they're more insulated from noises than that, but that's basically the problem. So the way you do it is you build more than one. You put them on more than one place on the Earth. Uh, in this case, the, the LIGO detectors are in Washington State and in Louisiana, which is, what, what 1,500 miles apart, and then there's a third built by another science consortium out of Italy, which is in Italy called the Virgo detector. LIGO and Virgo, and these are acronyms for interferometers for gravitational wave detection. On the evening of the 14th of January, roughly 11 days ago, all of these detectors, the two components of the LIGO instrument in Washington and in Louisiana, separated by 1,500 miles, and on the other side of the world, practically, the one, the Virgo detector in, in Italy, all detected something, a gravitational bump in the night, which only lasted for 14 milliseconds. Now, a millisecond is one thousandth of a second. So whatever happened gravitationally went whoop and was gone. And they've been looking and looking, and there's been no repeats. But here's where things get really, really interesting. 
because this gravitational wave, which was very different than the previous gravitational waves which they had detected from spiraling black holes and neutron stars coming together in a big crunch after they spiral in in their gravitationally radiating close in orbits to each other, those produce a kind of a chirp, you know, where it starts low frequency and then it goes whoop. This was a whoop, a blip, or what they call it technically, a burst. And there are very few things in the universe powerful enough to create a gravitational burst that we know about. One of which being a supernova, a ancient star blowing itself to kingdom come when the interior collapses and the energy that that creates blows away the envelope and the other materials on the outside of the star at several, you know, like 15 or 20,000 miles per second. Which, of course, if this happened to Betelgeuse, only 650 light years away, uh, it wouldn't threaten life on Earth. That's good. But it would totally, dramatically, amazingly change the night sky. And that's what item number one on Twitter is all about. That is a recreation in the computer of what Betelgeuse would look like if it goes supernova and it would become brighter than the full moon. It would last in the sky for months, or I'm sorry, daytime sky for months, nighttime sky for over a year. And then when it finally diminished in luminosity, you wouldn't see anything with the naked eye at all. And Orion would be a constellation bereft of the bright red supergiant in the upper right shoulder. So this gravity wave that they detected, I mean, normally when supernova go bang, when that core collapses, that produces the bloop, gravitational burst. At least that's the theory, that's the model, that's the calculation. Some of the astronomers on Twitter that night when all this happened, they're all talking to each other, of course, twittering back and forth. Oh, I finally got to use that phrase. Um, they went outside and looked physically with their eyeballs, naked eyeballs at, at Orion. And they seemed very kind of embarrassed to have done that because it was like, well, we don't need to do that because we know from the way the sensors uh, positioned that this gravity wave, while close to Betelgeuse, was not exactly on Betelgeuse. And apparently the precision of the pointing when they do the calculations in the computer as to where <clears throat> these signals are coming from is very precise. So the idea that something went gravitationally bang in the night bump in the night, whatever term you want to use, cliche. But it wasn't Betelgeuse itself, because it's still there. I checked uh, earlier this evening. It's it's still there. Now, the second weird thing about Betelgeuse is it's been dimming. After the shrinkage, you know, 15 years ago, it's been dimming for the last 10 years. But, but we don't know if it's still shrinking, because I can find zero papers on anyone currently doing the interferometry measurements of its physical size. So, lots of mysteries. Um, I just wanted to kind of lay that out there because I'm trying to keep you up to date on continuing weirdnesses and the idea that uh, Betelgeuse could in fact be going to do something interesting and maybe the gravitational wave was part of the beginnings of the collapse in the star, which didn't produce a change in brightness yet, but will sometime in the next week or month 
or maybe 100,000 years. Okay, item number four. Another mystery we've been following is the great dr drone surveys going on in uh, eastern Colorado and western Nebraska. There's a story out, you know, now a few days old, that says that maybe the mystery has been solved. The problem is, I don't think it has been solved. You know, there's a whole bunch of uh, missile bases in Nebraska and Wyoming and eastern Colorado that are part of our deterrent. You know, if the Soviet Union ever launched a nuclear missile attack, you know, MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction, we would launch, the President would authorize a launch of our missiles, and that's the end of life on Earth, or at least certainly civilized life for a long, 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 long time. Maybe more than 100,000 years. Well, apparently they've been troubled by incursions in the relatively recent past, last couple, three years, by drones, by people flying drones over the missile silos. And the reason that uh, the Air Force doesn't want that is because those drones can have cameras, those cameras can be taking pictures of entry points and mechanisms whereby saboteurs, that's a term we haven't heard recently, could sneak up on the missile silo and do something to incapacitate it so when it was required in the event of a uh, missile launch necessity, the doors wouldn't open or something else might go wrong. So the Air Force is very, very upset if people wander in, in and around these sites or now, more recently, fly drones that can take pictures that can kind of ferret out the best ways to approach stealthily to do bad things. So the Air Force has developed counter-drone efforts, which involve their own drones. So you've got spy drones and counter-spy counter drones. And unfortunately, if you might think, well, this is the solution of the mystery, these regular after 7 o'clock at night after sunset till about 10 overflights of this vast set of wilderness, you know, level, flat wilderness in Colorado, and western Nebraska, and I guess in southeast Wyoming, are in fact um, drills by the Air Force marshalling their counter-drone forces. The problem with that theory, which this writer seems to think, um, Tom Reeder seems to think, is the solution to the drone problem, the Air Force is saying, no, it's not us. And there's no reason why they would lie. I mean, really, government lie? No one ever heard of that, right? Because it's like it would only build their public image to basically say, yes, this is us. We're working 24-7 to protect your national security. It's the Air Force on call, standing by, on guard. I mean, every positive indicator would indicate that if they're doing this, they would admit they're doing this, and they don't for some reason. So we go back to the mystery. And as you know, when I talked with the Morning Star, you know, a couple of shows ago, I said, I think they're looking for something because you don't fly grid search patterns unless you're looking for something. And you don't fly it at night unless you're looking for anomalous infrared radiation, which would be masked and uh, camouflaged because of sunlight and heating during the day. So the mystery remains. Which brings us to item number five. Now, this is really, really interesting and fun, and it may actually be predictive. On Friday afternoon, just as the Senate was going through its trial, the impeachment trial of the current president of the United States, that current president, Donald John Trump, 
made an announcement. He unveiled with much fanfare the logo now of the Space Force that has finally been enacted by Congress in the most recent defense appropriation authorization. And he brought out the logo and everybody said, what? Because if you look at item number five in my radio with pictures, it is eerily, eerily, eerily similar to the logo of Starfleet Command, Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek. And this has created a firestorm of reaction all over Twitter, all over the world, valiant Star Trek fans, as we are, including a Twitter post from George Takei, who, of course, played uh, Sulu on the original series and in some of the films. <clears throat> and all uh, George said was, <clears throat> I think we may be owed royalties. <laughs> now, keep in mind that the Enterprise mission, named you know, blatantly after Gene's creation, um, and the fact that I was involved in the naming, renaming of the first shuttle, from Constitution, which NASA wanted, to Enterprise. That's a very interesting story. I should tell that some night. We all sent to this president some, about a year ago, a little over a year ago, a video, which is at the very top of the page you're looking at. If you just scroll to the top, you will see the presidential briefing, all-world image anomalies, by the Enterprise Mission, Image Analysis Workshop Number 1, that's three hours of all the amazing stuff out there that the Space Force is someday going to be exploring in their brand new cameo uniforms. That's a whole other controversy we won't get into tonight. So it's not illogical to imagine that maybe the president, who of course is very much on top of this whole Space Force thing, it's his idea, had more than a passing hand in the graphic design of the logo and the Enterprise briefing on the image anomalies, the ancient ruins lying on the moon and on Mars and other places around the solar system, captured his attention to where he said to his guys, hey, <clears throat> let's do something kind of, you know, Star Trekky with this because they're voters. There's lots of voters in them, our logos. Again, this is total supposition. I do not know this for a fact, but I do know that the logo of the... Uh, of, you know, Starfleet Command, tonight bears an eerie resemblance to the United States Space Force official logo. Which brings me to item number six. Now, I don't know how many of you are following the impeachment trial. It's, it's useful if for no other reason that it's really forcing a lot of us to go back and read our Federalist Papers and go back and consider what the founders were considering when they created the impeachment section of the Constitution, and regardless of your opinion on whether he's guilty or not, it's an extraordinary real-time living history lesson. Well, the evidence apparently for Fox News, or at least one major well-known analyst on Fox, which has been called in some quarters the Trump Network, this analyst basically says there is now ample and uncontradicted evidence that Trump should be removed from office, which, of course, comes with its own extraordinary conversation, discussions, controversies, which we're not going to get into tonight. But as George Will said in a um, column, I think, in, in today's Washington Post, he's a very well-known Republican uh, 
opinion writer and analyst who has had columns in the major press for decades. He said, I think I'm paraphrasing his title correctly, he says, Meanwhile, on one small planet in the galaxy, because when you put the stories in sequence, the potential that 650 light years away, a major star is going to blow its top and bathe the Earth in extraordinary cosmic light and consciousness, because everybody will look up, There'll be all kinds of people, billions of people being able to see this with the naked eye. If it happens in our lifetime, it will become the cause celeb of conversation. It will put all of us into a cosmic context instantly where we all are. And as Jim, um, Jim, as uh, George Will said, it kind of puts in context what's currently going on, regardless of your position politically, currently in Washington. And with that out of the way, I'm going to segue into our guest tonight, Jim Willis. After graduating from the Eastman School of Music, Jim Willis was a high school band and orchestra teacher during the day and a symphony trombonist on the weekends. Oh, and a jazz musician at night. Oh, and a choral director on Sunday mornings before earning his master's in religion and entering the Protestant ministry for some 40 years. Currently the author of 12 books on religion and spirituality, he served as an adjunct college professor in the fields of world religions and instrumental music while working part-time as a carpenter. Hmm, following instead of someone else who was a carpenter. Hmm. The host of his own drive-time radio show, an arts council director, a guest lecturer speaking on topics ranging from historical studies to contemporary spirituality. His teaching career produced both the comprehensive one-volume encyclopedia of religion, the religion book, and Armageddon Now, written with his wife, Barbara. Concern for spiritual growth in contemporary society prompted his book Faith, Trust, and Belief, while his love for long-distance cycling led him to make several cross-country bike trips and inspired his biking trilogy Journey Home, Snapshots and Visions, and Savannah. A Bicycle Journey Through Time and Space. And I could read all the rest of that, but uh, you can go to the other side of midnight, just scroll down on the guest page, and there is his bio. Mr. Willis, welcome back yes. to the other side of midnight. Richard, I'm, I'm amazed. What a tour de force, starting from uh, Orion and and. Coming back down to earth, I, I, I'm. It's wonderful. <laughs> Good to be well, with you. Well, given that we're actually going to be traveling between dimensions as well tonight, I thought we needed yeah. a kind of a cosmic setting of the table, a cosmic context for our discussion. Well, that, that will that will do it. Uh, I'm on my back porch right now, rather than being in my room with a computer. I wanted to the uh, openness out here. And while you were talking about Orion, I could actually turn off the light go out on the deck and look up, and Orion is just just still visible. So uh, I was trying to picture him without his right shoulder. <laughs> well, uh, you can see it there, but it, it's so much dimmer, and it's been dimming anomalously. Yeah. And for a while, the, the professional guys were saying, well, it's just part of a cycle. It's, it's actually a semi-variable star. <clears throat> when these... When these aging stars grow old... They become unstable because of energy generation in the core, and they're, yeah. they're 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 transitioning between in these models several fusion cycles 
that go on and when you go between them there is instability that propagates up to the surface and you see that as huge prominences or convective cells or whatever so Betelgeuse is a semi-variable it has two periods one which is about six years in length getting slightly brighter and slightly dimmer and the other is about 425 days which is just a little longer than an earth year and what some guys were saying was well these two cycles have now coincided so we have an unusually deep dip meaning it's uh-huh. you know kind of a coincidence of dimming on on the on these two time scales the problem with that is that's happened before historically and this dimming is more severe than any in the recorded history of astronomy well when you when you talked about it going on for 10 years i kind of feel it's my fault because <laughs> we moved out into the woods we moved out into the woods just about 10 years ago and i've been looking at orion almost every night so i i hope i'm not just staring it to death i'm not sure <laughs> <laughs> okay well uh, let let's do this let's let's go back to the top of the page and i'll read the title of your book because you know, for a for a for a Protestant minister, this is frankly that not that much of a leap. It says the quantum akashic field, a guide to out of body experiences for the astral traveler. And by the way, if anybody wants to do this, you don't have to die to do this. You can do this any night or any day, right? <laughs> right? right, absolutely. Okay, absolutely. well tonight. Matter of fact, I think most most people probably have already, but just don't realize it. Oh well, tonight for those that do realize it, I want to make a request to our worldwide audience. As you know, our ratings just came in, and we have an amazing audience listening to us tonight all around the planet. You know, we're competing with the big boys. You know, like George and the other folks up there, Clyde. <clears throat> if you're going to travel out of body, particularly tonight. Try to go over toward Betelgeuse and let us know what's going on and then come back and tell us because that's the only way, because it's hyperdimensional, that we're going to get beyond light speed to find out what the situation is there kind of right now. Okay? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. that that is my request. All right. Uh, let me do a couple things here. Cause we're coming down to the bottom of the hour. So why don't you, in the couple minutes we got till we make the break, why don't you tell us how did you get into the idea of writing a book about the quantum Akashic field? And of course, you got to start with, what the heck is the quantum Akashic field? <laughs> in just a few minutes. Huh? Well, just do a tease. We got a couple minutes. Oh, okay, um, I like to to. Well, as 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 a minister, as a member of the clergy, uh, for a long time, even though I am officially retired and and moved on in in, in different directions now in a lot of ways, you're always um, caught with that sense of being. Who are we? And what is? How did we get here? What is it all about? And I, as I moved out into the to the woods ten years ago, my wife and I decided to go on a retreat. And uh, we moved out to the woods of South Carolina. We built a house. And we deliberately go days sometimes without seeing or hearing anybody because we wanted to wrestle with that essential being. Uh, Who is the I that says, I have a body, I have a heart, I have a mind, I have this, I have that? Who is that I? And so we moved out to the woods just to live 
in a meditation, so to speak. And although in some cases it's been wonderful, in some cases it's been difficult, uh, it's very difficult to get away totally nowadays, um, it's, it's been a wonderful thing. But in the process, uh, we discovered what I like to call the journey out from the source. And uh, probably need more time to go into that. But one step of that journey is the Akashic field. And Akasha just comes from uh, Irvin Laszlo, the author who has done so much with uh, quantum mechanics and quantum reality. And when he was trying to describe that field, he had to go back to the Sanskrit, Hindu Sanskrit, to find a word that would uh, talk, in essence, about quantum reality. And he called it the Akashic field. And perfect, it's one of two place, fields. Perfect place to pause. Oh, okay. okay. And we'll pick this up on the other side. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. My guest tonight is Jim Willis, who is many, many things. He's the generalist generalist, up to and including being a Protestant minister, ordained minister, who has some familiarity with what's out there. And we're going to talk about what's out there in terms of what's beyond out there, the Akashic field. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. about hope for some people tonight that we need to keep in our thoughts and prayers and hope for a better world that we can actually help them achieve. I'm talking, of course, about the people in the Bahamas. Um, if you go to the other side of midnight.com, uh, that's our homepage, and click on that banner which says at the top, Save Lives, Pure Water for the Bahamas. We have been introduced to a technology. It's a filtering technology in, uh, uh, in a certain kind of non-allergenic plastic form um, you buy one of these bottles with a filter it will replace something like 500 ordinary bottles of of uh, mineral water whatever the kind that they've been shipping to these disaster sites you know on pallets and letting sit outside in the sun and obviously they're not in non-allergenic pl plastic so the water is ruined and thousands of tons of water that was supposed to reach the victims of Hurricane Marie sat there and, and rotted in the sun. The same thing's been happening in the Bahamas. If tonight you want to do something to inject meaningful change into a whole group of people's lives, 60 to 100,000 people on those two northern Bahama islands tonight, just go to that site, click on that banner, and then scroll down below the Yes, I Want to Help button, and there's a video that was shot right after the um, uh, Dorian disaster. I saw a video a couple days ago. Nothing has changed. It is like living in an apocalypse. It is like living in, you know, the land of the Lord of the Flies. It's living in conditions that you tonight, listening to my voice, cannot imagine you sustaining 24 hours, 36 hours, two months, five months, you know, a year, five years. It's, it's impossible. They've, they've been trying to bring water in from desalinization. I think the U.S. Navy has brought a couple of ships and anchored them 
you know, in the northern ports there, and they desalinize seawater to provide water for the inhabitants on the islands, but it's costing $7 per gallon to produce one gallon of fresh water from the surrounding seawater. This technology, which we are privy to, which you can buy by clicking on that button, as many of these bottles of water, life-saving water, and send to the Bahamas as you can afford tonight. And yes, it's tax deductible because it's a nonprofit association that we're in league with, which is doing this. There is no quicker, more effective way in this season to transform someone's life than to give them the gift of life, which is pure 99.99% pure water. And the bottle and the system is recyclable And all you do is change the filter after the equivalent of about 500 ordinary plastic water bottles. And the bottles that they're in, the actual water bottles that you're sending, they will last essentially forever. And they will reach how many people? 1,000, 5,000, 10,000. So do whatever you can. Open your heart and make a difference in someone's life tonight. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, January 25th, 2020. Our guest this evening is Jim Willis, ordained minister, jack of many, many trades. You know, the bicycling trips alone could probably take a show because you must have had amazing adventures when you bicycled not once, but what, how many times across the country? Uh, Twice from west to east and once from south to north. And then uh, from Florida to um, to um, Massachusetts, and from California to the first time was California to Maryland. The second time was California to Massachusetts, and um, uh, yeah, it was it was it was great. I was I was younger. <laughs> I was younger <laughs> then, but it was uh, it was good. Uh, and I recently, uh, just a couple of years ago wanted to do one more bike trip so i did one uh, that prompted my book savannah it's about the savannah river because i started up at the the headwaters of the savannah river and followed it uh by bicycle all the way down to the sea from source to sea and uh that prompted my book savannah a uh, uh, bicycle journey through space and time so bicycling is uh, is great is great i i just love it i don't do as far and as often as i once did but uh i still love it you know, that brings up a, an old memory. Art and I used to talk about uh, someday, you know, back when I was a, a featured guest on the, his original Coast to Coast. I yeah. thought that Robin and I might take a car trip, a road trip across the country, and we'd stop wow. at various little hamlets, and I would do a presentation on our research. You know, we'd, you know, rent a hall or we'd go to a local theater or whatever. And then that night, you know, I would uh, do coast to coast and I'd bring people on from the local community to just kind of get a feel for what the country feels about various things. And I I still kind of 
you know, Robin's no longer here, but I still have that idea that it would be so interesting to reach out and touch real Americans all over the country. You did it three times. Have you ever really talked about on the air that experience with the people you met and the problems they've solved and the uh, triumphs in their quiet lives of, uh, what was that great line, quiet lives of desperation that some famous Uh, writer talked about? Because they're the unsung heroes while this stuff is going on in Washington. They're the real America. And there's too little exposure to their thoughts, their ideas, their hopes, their dreams, and where they want to take, take, you know, this society that we've created, this amazing country called the United States of America. Yeah, it was it was it was wonderful for that person. I I did it uh, well starting off in the late 70s. Well, actually, my first one actually was back in the late 60s. So I bicycled from uh, Rochester to New York to Detroit, Michigan, through Ontario, Canada, and. Um, Back in those days, especially in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you still found the little motels. You still found the little drive-ins. You still found the little uh, restaurants where you could go. And uh, people would feel free to come up to you, and they would see your funny hat and your funny pants, you know, and see the bicycle out front all loaded up with panniers and all. And they they would ask if they could sit down and maybe buy you a cup of coffee and talk. And uh, that was wonderful. That was wonderful. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I, I, I get the feeling uh, uh, the last really long bicycle trip I took was probably maybe 12 years ago. Uh, well, except for the Savannah trip. Uh, I did the length of the St. Johns River in, in Florida. And uh, I, I get the idea that things are changing. Uh, the roads seem busier. The people seem busier. The speed is, is, is worse. Um, I, I'm glad I caught it when I did. I'm just hoping that I didn't catch the tail end, but more and more I'm beginning to think that. Um, when I bicycled through uh, western Maryland, um, it, I, had, I, I remember a wonderful, just wonderful freedom in, in the mountains out there. But when I went to visit my daughter who lived out there, this is a number of years ago now, my daughter lived out there, and uh, we went out and tried to find the road that I bicycled on, we looked and looked and couldn't find it, and then discovered it was now a highway, um, part of the the road system, you know. Uh, and it it is, um, it's 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 becoming more difficult. It really is. I think you'd have to work at it more. Well, the interstates, of course, have taken over and bypassed all these little yeah. tiny communities. You know, my yeah. my uh, parents yeah. actually had a uh, <clears throat> bed and breakfast. Uh, on Route 15 in a little place called Lewistown, Lewistown, Maryland, and one of ah, our one yeah. of our colleagues found it on Google, and Google, you know, Street View, and it's ama- The house is still there. The town is still yeah. there. It's it's untouched. But when the when the interstate was put in, of course, all the major yes. traffic bypassed Lewistown, so you know our business yeah. collapsed, and uh, yeah, you know. That's happened to so many people all over the... Oh, it's a shame. It's it's a shame because the, the small motels go and the small diners go. And that was the place where people really used to hang out. You know, and now when I go on a long bicycle trip now and I'm looking for a motel, I've almost got to look on the map, find out where the interstate is and try to get near an intersection because I know that's the only place I'm going to find motels, you know. Uh, 
it's it's a it's it's a changing world um in some ways of course better but we're losing a lot at the same time yep so let's go back to the akashic field which is a little bit uh, okay. larger than the continental united states how i mean we probably need to run up to this you were defining before the break where the term akashic field came from how did that connect to your interests you're living alone in the woods for 10 years and searching for, you know, what the hell are we all doing in this place? Yeah. You know, a lot of people uh, probably get a mistaken idea about about ministry. Uh, most of us, most clergy go into the, into the, uh, the ministry with the idea of uh, life being about a spiritual journey and spiritual growth and r- meeting each other along the way and trying to help, help each other along the way. It doesn't work that way. You, you, you get involved in the local church and uh, all of a sudden you have to start planning, you've got to go to board meetings, uh, you've got to start doing counseling, you've got to plan the next church you've got a sermon, you've got to plan the next church service, you get involved with the politics of it, not only of the church, but of the town, and you get involved with missions. Pretty soon, 40 years go by, and you say, where, where did it go? Um, you just haven't had the time to uh, have that kind of spiritual development. And ministry is no different than anything else in the sense that I think we're all so busy. We all uh, wake up as young kids when we're thinking, I want to I want to find out the meaning of life. I want to ask the big questions. And then we get involved with making a living and doing what we have to do and raising families and getting involved in communities. And pretty soon it's behind us. Well, when I when my wife and I retired, uh, we saw this 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 loss. We saw this la- uh, lack, and we sensed that we really we really missed something that was really important. So we moved out here to the woods, and like I say, we 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 had planned on coming out here for about a year, probably, uh, just to watch the seasons change and to slow down and grab a breath and stay and plan the next stage of our life. And uh, I came out here. To, to wrestle with God, no doubt about it. I I even had a, a Bible verse in mind. I uh, I will not let you go until you bless me. Uh, it happened. Uh, that particular Bible verse happened in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, Jacob and Esau were two brothers who were estranged, and Jacob uh, went off fleeing for his life. Actually, when uh, his his brother had. Had, when he had actually stolen a birthright from his brother. And much later, after Jacob had had a chance to uh, marry the women who were going to become the mothers of the 12 uh, tribes of Israel, Jacob and Esau were about to be reconciled. And uh, the night before, the Bible, the Bible tells the story in Genesis, the night before they were going to be reconciled, as the story goes, Jacob was up nervous and he was pacing like we all do when we get nervous in the middle of the night and wonder what the morrow is going to bring. And uh, uh, this uh, being, this, this, this person shows up and Jacob wrestles with him. I know it makes no sense at all, but he does. He wrestles all night long. And just well, before wait, wait, the is, dawn... Is, and, is, is this the same story with the ladder and the angels going up and down and all that? Uh, this... Yeah, the, the, it happened. Uh, the, the latter happened earlier. The latter happened when he was fleeing away from Esau, ah, okay. and this re- this wrestling match came when he was coming back. 
And as the morning was about to break, uh, Jacob realized he had been wrestling with what uh, theologians call a theophany, which was God in the flesh, so to speak, an entity from another dimension. And Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And uh, with that, his name was changed from Jacob to Israel, and he became the patriarch of the 12 tribes of Israel. But when he said, I will not let you go until you bless me, he was, in effect, wrestling with God. And that was the verse that was on my mind. I wanted to come out here and get rid of all of the, de- 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 the denominational doctrine and dogma and everything else and I wanted to wrestle with God, and I, I, that was the verse with me. I will not let you go until you bless me. I was tired of what I used to call peekaboo religion, you know, where God just kind of hides from us, and we try to find him and all that kind of stuff. And I wanted the essential reality. And uh, lo and behold, my prayer was answered, uh, except it wasn't answered within the bounds of Christianity, my tradition. It probably wouldn't have worked. I was probably too familiar with it. And my whole um, relationship with, with, with God, with the source, with um, uh, Brahman, as Hindus say, or Manitou, as the Native Americans would say, the essential reality of life, the, uh, the meaning, the consciousness of life, um, that began really with, uh, to much to my surprise, with something that sounded a lot more pagan than, than Christian. Uh, probably shamanism comes closer enough. Um, <laughs> there is a sequel to this story that I've got to share with you, though. After having that verse, I will not let you go until you bless me, and wanting to wrestle with God, a number of years ago uh, I was asked to go to Cornwall, and uh, in England, and while I was over over there uh, giving a talk on uh, comparative religion, world religion, to a group called the Parallel Community, while I was over there, had a wonderful time with them, but I couldn't leave without going up to a little town called Fenny Compton, which is up northwest of London. And the reason I had to go up there was my ancestors, uh, way back when, great, 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 great grandfathers before the country, before the America was founded, uh, were preachers in this little town of Fenny Compton, and the church where they preached still stood. And so I got in touch with the, uh, the, the uh, a local historian, and she met me outside, and we got in, and I got to stand in the pulpit where my ancestors preached. She took me back to the uh, behind the chancel, and there on the wall was the plaques of all the different ministers, and there was uh, Reverend Willis, it was the Church of England. And when I was in the pulpit standing where my ancestors stood and preached for, for Sunday after Sunday after Sunday for years and years, I happened to see a stained glass window that was only visible from the pulpit. And I went over to look at this window. I couldn't believe my eyes. It was a stained glass window that pictured Jacob oh, wrestling with God, saying, God. I will not let you go until you bless me. Somehow, through a couple of hundred years, that spiritual DNA was passed on to me, the descendant, and uh, I, I want to tell you, the hair stood up on the back of my neck See, <laughs> when I saw in, that. In my universe, I would call that a hyperdimensional resonance. I believe it. And it really I, connects through time, you know, yeah, which, is, yeah. which is not the fourth dimension. That's a, that's a relativity thingy. There yeah, are more yeah. than one set of spatial dimensions and maybe even parallel time tracks. Keith and I were talking yeah. before we went on the air. 
because a, a good friend of his died this morning and he says uh, I'll meet him in the past and I thought that was an extraordinary insight because are we maybe looping do we live these lives sequentially over are we able to improve on the first iteration or you know mark 2 mark 3 mark 3.0 that kind of th in other mm -hmm. words the mysteries are so redolent yes and and that's exactly why i think out of body travel is so important because there are there are really two different kinds of out of body travel uh the first is called uh etheric travel and that's that's local uh that's within this dimension within this time period even within this so, reality of, of so that that would be that would be travel within the ether and or the torsion yeah that's field. right and and th this was the same kind of travel for instance that the the military was involved in when, when oh they, uh, the remote viewing with, with dames and all those guys re remote remote viewing exactly um uh skip atwater would had, has written a wonderful book about this because he was he was involved in it from the very beginning and incidentally, our military never would have gotten involved with it, except that they, they had intelligence that the Russians were doing it, mm. and they didn't want the Russians to get ahead of us. So that's oh, why course. we were doing it. Of course, yeah. So this is, this is etheric uh, local travel. But when we talk about the other kind of out-of-body travel, we're talking about astral travel, and that's the other dimensional. Uh, now that's, that's interesting because I've, I've never I've never heard Jim anyone divide it into these hierarchies. I've just thought yeah. that astral travel was basically you know you leave your body in the bed and you can go to Betelgeuse and check it out and come back and let us yeah. know. Well, that's uh, that's certainly possible. Um, uh, and at the Monroe Institute in Virginia, where where they they do tremendous work with this, uh, founded by Bob Monroe. Um, and when, when they do tremendous work with this, they have stories about people going to the moon, people going to Mars, people going to this, and actually uh, yeah, checking things out and coming back. Of course, you can't exactly bring a souvenir back so when they come back with the stories and nobody believes them. Well, you know, that kind of thing. that's not quite... Well, few people, few people believe them. No, 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 it's, it's, it's even more interesting than that. Remember that line in, yeah. uh, in Independence Day when, uh, when uh, what's his name, Richard Benjamin's father says, you know, what about the, that, those, you know, $900 toilet seats and all that, you know? And, and yeah. the, the, the defense uh, secretary says to the president, well, that's not exactly true. <laughs> there, there have been NASA images, as I said at the top, taken all over the solar system, showing stunning artifacts. I mean, we're we're heir to something so beyond our belief and imagination that's been sat on by the government, yeah, by our space yeah. agency. But we've got the actual yeah, I, images of artifacts and all that. When the first remote viewers started at SRI, particularly where I was birthed for a while with this investigation, started talking about things on Mars and on the moon. Yeah. I looked mm -hmm. at the imagery, and the imagery that they were alluding to that they'd never seen is of the stuff they were describing in their remote viewing session. So, yes, we do have confirmation that they went and saw something beyond yeah. normal yeah. physical reality. Yeah, and that's that's where I think we're 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 going with this right now. 
um, probably the vast majority of, of people, especially in the academic community, look upon this and with a grain of salt at the most, you know. But I think we're not talking just about what seems like this woo-woo mystical stuff. I think we're discovering with our science the um, the actual reality of a world and a dimension that has been explored by shamans and mystics and gurus for thousands and thousands of years. In other words, the metaphysical and the physical, which have been going down parallel lines ever since Isaac Newton, um, now are beginning to merge. And I think what we're, we're, we're the, the day will come, maybe not in my lifetime, but certainly in my grandchildren's time, the day will come when people will look back on this and realize that uh, the out-of-body experience and remote viewing and um, psychokinesis and all of these kind of things are actually uh, a, a part of reality in the sense that there is a scientific uh, a background to them. We just don't understand it yet. But, of course, the first way to understand it is to begin to admit that it's real. And I think maybe now people are starting to admit maybe there's something here. At least I hope so. Well, one way would be if we get a bunch of people going to Betelgeuse and coming back and saying, guess what? And then three weeks Wouldn't from tonight, you know, the astronomers yeah. say, guess what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and you know what, what, what really gets me about this is this is, this is not new. And a lot of people will say, you know, Jim, you're a minister. You know, come on, how could you be involved in this kind of stuff? Well, all I want is to say to folks like this is, read your Bible. The Bible is full of stuff like this. Um, Isaiah tells the story about being taken up to heaven, and there he sees otherworldly ent entities that he describes as a half-human and half-animal, um, he, he uh, which is a, a purely shamanic journey. Ezekiel, of course, the famous Ezekiel story, uh, seeing the UFO uh, with the wheels within the wheels. I just the read Apostle, that. I read an analysis yeah. just the other day from the 1960s yeah. when this idea was first emerging that yeah. maybe the yeah. whole Ezekiel thing was a UFO experienced um, yeah. through the eyes of a very primitive guy, you know, a couple, three millennia ago. Well, yeah, I, I, I think Ezekiel was a, fits the perfect example of a shaman. Uh, and I, I think probably what Ezekiel saw is pictured, if you want to go back 40,000 years to the great painted caves of Lascaux in Western Europe and some of those other caves, I think the shaman back there, they saw these same kind of things and they tried to reproduce them in art on the walls of the caves. And that's, you see the same thing when you go out to the southwest of New Mexico and Arizona, hmm. and you see the art of the Native Americans out there. I think they're trying to depict something well, what about that the was whole, just totally what, beyond their experience. What about the whole Dreamtime stuff in Australia, which is oh, yes, stunning, yeah. stunning. And, oh, absolutely. And and I, I find it fascinating now that uh, um, Australian uh, the people who lived in Australia, their ancestors, the dates are just going back and back and back. Australia is a truly ancient, ancient country. People were there a long time earlier than, than people thought about. Uh, and and, 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 and uh, there, there is similar imagery, I think, found in the last couple of years 
in caves, a cave in the Philippines, I believe. Yes, yes. And right. it, yeah, the Philippines. It's dated now 39,000, 40,000 years if it's a day. Yeah. Which is yeah. what, 10, 15,000 years older than Lascaux? Uh, I, yeah, I, I swear that uh, these these folks we 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 talk about them being primitive. Um, I think they were just different than us. That's all. I think they were in touch with stuff that we have forgotten, and yeah, even even standards in the faith. The Apostle Paul in Second Corinthians twelve talks about his uh, out of body experience. Uh, he he says he was taken whether in the body or out out of the body. He's not sure, but he was taken up into heaven where he saw things of which he is not permitted to speak. Um, a strange one that I love to read about uh, Moses and Elijah. Uh, they died suspicious deaths, to say the least, in the <laughs> Old Testament. Uh, Moses walked up into the hills and was never seen again, and they thought he just may have died up there, except in the little book of Jude in the Christian New Testament, we find that Michael is debating and and contesting the devil over the body of Moses. Michael was claiming it, and the devil wanted it. Mm. Uh, Elijah, of course, was taken up into heaven in a flaming chariot. And then, lo and behold, what happens in the Gospels, Matthew, uh, Mark, and uh, Luke, uh, Jesus takes three of his inner circle disciples, Peter, James, and John, up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And who steps out of the ether? Moses and Elijah the two guys who had suspicious deaths in the Old Testament, hmm. and they were all transfigured before them. Uh, we can go to uh, uh, the classic example of an entity coming out of another dimension, I think, is uh, the angel that we call Gabriel. He appears to Daniel in the Old Testament and gives him the great prophecy of what's going to happen in the future. He appears to Mary and says, Mary, you're going to give birth uh, in a, let's say, a non-traditional way. And then he appears in, in the Quran to Muhammad and uh, takes him on the famous night journey where Muhammad uh, rides up into the seven heavens. And I think these are, our, our religion is shot through with these things. And too often when people say, Jim, you're a minister, how can you believe these things? I'm going to say to them, um, if you're reading your Bible, how can you not believe in them? Because they're all, they're all there. It's just that in our age, we've put this practical twist on everything where we're looking at uh, things as they are and saying, well, it's just metaphors. It couldn't have really happened. You know, I'm beginning to wonder more and more as I read these texts, something happened and it was remembered. Now, maybe it's garbled. Maybe it's, it's, uh, you know, changed with the telling, but I think there's an essence of something here, a reality that our ancestors faced and that our ancestors understood, and we've forgotten it. Okay, hold it there. We're at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Jim Willis, ordained Jim Willis, Protestant minister. And this is one of his songs. He used to write and sing gospel music. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. This is Jim and Company singing in the break. Then my ship would sail no more. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. 
Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Over and out.